0: Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin. Hey
1: everybody, uh, this is Scott Parkin co-host of Green and Red Podcast, uh, reporting from the quarantine. Um, We're still here, uh, and we have uh, lots of exciting things going on. We have some exciting shows coming up. But today is May 19th, and so we're excited to focus today because it is the birthday of uh, um, two powerful influential iconic figures in world history, which is Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. And so we're going to be talking about uh, those those two revolutionary spirits and the lives they lived. And as always, I'm joined by
2: Bob uh, Bezenko. It's uh, good to talk to you again, Scott. And uh, yeah, 130 years ago today, Ho Chi Minh was born and 95 years ago today, Malcolm X was born and they are you know, absolutely two of the most important figures in revolutionary politics and liberation movements, Uh, really inspired countless numbers of people in the uh, later 20th century, especially later the second half of the 20th century. And, um, you know, I think they're important to know today. You know, uh, you and I kind of grew up in a generation, one removed from Ho and, and Malcolm. So we were, you know, kind of trained by people and inspired by people who, you know, were directly influenced by them. But now, you know, we're we're you know we're kind of way past that. And so it's important to understand um, you know, what what that time was like, the the period after World War II, you had this period of kind of anti-colonial revolutions, liberation movements, and Ho and Malcolm were clearly two of the, the most important people um in that entire era. And they're worth knowing still today.
1: Yeah, and so I I think uh, what we we talked about is kind of starting with a little bit of background on each of them and then talking about part of what they contributed to that moment that was in the 20th century of um, anti-colonial revolutionary movements. And then we'll also talk some, and we'll talk about, we'll go into depth on a couple of things there. And then we're also gonna talk about their legacy even today. Um, and so I, I think we were gonna start with Ho. Yes, um, as,
2: as most of you know, I've uh, written a couple books on the Vietnam War. I'm a professor, I teach classes on Vietnam, not Vietnamese history per se, but so I know a little bit about Ho Chi Minh and, and you know uh, he's been an inspirational figure uh, in my entire life really. I mean, from the first time I ever started reading about the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh, the National Liberation Front and Ho. Um, you know, I was always kind of moved by by the power of his intellect, by his uh, strategic brilliance, um, and by his you know kind of by, the way, by his spirit, his revolutionary spirit. Um, Nguyen Singh Kung was born on May 19th, 1890, in Nha province in Annam, and he would become known to the world later as Ho Minh. Uh, his dad was a civil servant who was fired because he refused to learn French. He refused to work in a French colony. They contrived these charges of like drunkenness and embezzlement. Um, Ho himself was well-educated. He went to a French academy in Huey. And after that, he left and he became a merchant seaman. He went to London and then uh, the most important kind of in in the early period of his life, the most important step was going to to Paris in 1917. um, There was a huge expat community there uh, of East Asians and, and of course of Vietnamese because it was a, a, a French colony. Um, and uh, there he kind of began his political life in, in earnest. He had actually been raised uh, by his father to be a, a nationalist, uh, very famous French, I'm sorry, very famous Vietnamese poet, warrior named Boi Chau was friends with his father and Ho um, was aware of him. So he was raised in this nationalist spirit Uh, but um, during World War I uh, in Paris is where Ho really kind of developed politically. uh, There are always these stories that that he actually rented a tuxedo in 1919 and went to Versailles to try to get a meeting with with, uh, Woodrow Wilson, the American president. Wilson had been talking about ending colonialism and self-determination. Wilson didn't mean that to apply to Asia or Africa, anywhere like that. He was talking basically about the Balkans and places like that in Europe. Uh, But Ho already had that idea uh, behind him. Um, From there, he became a leading intellectual and a revolutionary in the 1920s. He went to China, where he met um, Zhou Enlai and Liu Shiqi, who were both really influential in the Chinese uh, Communist Party and in the the Chinese uh, Revolution. He joined the the, uh, PCF, the uh, French Communist Party. So Ho um, was already making this movement toward being a communist, but he also had this, this nationalism during the Vietnam War, one of the big issues is the Vietnamese revolution, is it, is it nationalist or is it communist? Well, it's both, right? And a lot of liberals were, always tried to deny the, the communist element of it, which was ridiculous because Ho was, was founder of, of the, the Indo-Chinese Communist Party. In China, um, he went to China and Moscow both in the 30s. He was appointed uh, to organize a League of East Asian Oppressed Peoples. And he, so he was very well known already by the 1930s throughout uh, uh, communist, circles globally. Um, he went to uh, the Wampoa Military Academy in China, very famous training ground for revolutionaries, uh, where he was trained by, uh, ironically, Zheng Zhixi and Zhou Enlai, who would later become rivals in the, in, the, in the Chinese Civil War. And um, in China, his, the best-known biographer in the early years of Ho was a, a, a French political scientist named Jean Couchure. And uh, I always like this quote and I use it whenever I talk about Ho. He said, while he was in China, Ho began a practical course in political ph- philosophy and behaved in general in the manner of a secular saint, chopping wood, stopping the barber from beating his wife and feeding the little boy. He played a role that was part Buddha and part Lenin in Finland. And I like that because that became Ho's persona um, for basically the rest of his life. He was Uncle Ho and if you've ever seen photos, of him, I'm not sure you have. He's a very frail guy, you know, short and he has a long goatee. And um, he had developed this persona and, and, and you know he didn't have this kind of uh, feared, you know, like Stalin, right? You're afraid of Stalin and Ho was, was quite opposite. Quo, Ho was very like kind of beatific. He was a poet, um, a revolutionary. Uh, while he was in China, he uh, developed contacts with people he, he would work with the rest of his life uh, Pham Van Dong, uh, Trong Chen, who became probably his best friend, uh, Van Nguyen Zap, who was the uh, commander of the uh, the uh, Vietnamese military forces for most of that the entire revolutionary period. Uh, they together formed the ICP, the Indochinese Communist Party. So already by the early 1930s, they're working on national liberation to get the French out of Vietnam and uh, to create a, a communist society. And their first program, their first platform appealed to both of those strains, and that's important because that's really going to be the, the threat of the Vietnamese Revolution all the way through the American era. Um, they made an appeal to the oppressed colonies and the exploited working classes, nationalism and communism. Uh, they obviously stressed getting rid of the French, but they talked about um, land redistribution, uh, civil rights, public education, and inequality and between men and women, which was in part of the, the, the platform. Um, later, they formed an organization called the Viet Minh, which would be the, the military grouping, the uh, political and military group uh, that fought against the, the, the French all the way through that. Um, there were two main issues, though, on which Ho and, and many of his comrades kind of had some issues, and I think this is important, and, and Malcolm, you kind of see kind of something similar too. Uh, initially Ho wanted to appeal not just to the peasants, but also to, to middle class and, and small landowners, petty bourgeois. Uh, to create kind of a popular front, and um, most of his comrades were opposed to that. So ultimately, uh, they said that the Viet Minh, the ICP, would be the party of the working class. Uh, but Ho never really lost that, that kind of desire to kind of try to reach out and create a, a more of a frontist government. And when you talk about Malcolm, I think we're going to see something uh, similar to that later uh, in his life. Um, at the same time, Ho would often be castigated for kind of being too deliberate and too slow. And in the early 1930s in Vietnam, you started to see these kind of spontaneous actions taking place. And as I was like kind of looking at this earlier today, I, I thought of what's happening today, right? Because right now in the United States, this is what we're seeing. You're seeing you know, kind of wildcats and spontaneous actions and mutual aid, but you're not seeing the kind of leaders, like certainly not the Democrats and, and even organized labor taking the lead in any of this. And, and this isn't that unusual. Right? So even in a revolutionary moment, like you had in the 1930s in Vietnam, um, Ho was, was seen as too deliberate. He was actually frequently uh, castigated, sometimes very harshly, by other communists um, for being too deliberate, for being too slow. Um, so uh, you started to see these, these actions, you know, strikes and cement works and rubber plantations and textile mills and Um, And the French would always uh, kind of react fairly harshly. Right. And so you had a great deal of repression and that repression tended to really damage the nationalist movement. And it was kind of like that was Ho's point. Right. They're going to come in. But they were always able to kind of work out of that. And and the French repression was so harsh that, you know, even though they would kill or more likely imprison nationalist and, and communist leaders, Um, it also turned the vietnamese even more harshly against the french remember the vietnamese have a long history of of uh fighting off foreign invaders i mean for literally for millennia chinese and mongols and
1: um and then in the you know there's a there's a great film called indochine about the french occupation of of indochina and there's a one of the kind of principal characters actually ends up in a french prison and her sort of, like, French godmother or her French surrogate mother is, like, really angry about that because she knows that, you know, what, what do people come when they go to those French prisons? They become Viet yeah. That's where they get politicized or that's where they get radicalized. And that's actually a little bit, little bit similar to what happens with Malcolm in early in his life as well.
2: Well, and I think, yeah, I mean, Ho and Malcolm both spent time in prison, and, and that was really vital uh, for them. I mean, Ho's interesting because, I mean, it, it's very kind of labyrinthine, and I'm not going to go into all the details because it's, it's very complex, but he goes in and out of China throughout the 1930s. And it, like, at various points, like he's on the payroll, so like the Guomindang actually hurt, are paying him, and then at various times, he's in jail. So just kind of depending on which way the wind blows, in the 30s, because of the popular frontism against Hitler and, and the, the, the Japanese fascist, ho kind of has an opening there. Um, and so uh, France moved into a popular front fra- fra- phase to fight against the Nazis, which gave uh, some opening in the colonies as well to, to some of these groups like like the Viet Minh. Uh, and they, um, you know, they ran, they were kind of in a semi-legal basis. They ran people on council and, and stuff like that. Uh, and they were able to, to more openly organize. So, this is when you see the, the, the real emergence of the people who would be still leading the, the Vietnamese in the 1960s during the American phase of the war. Phan Van Dong, Chen, Le Zhuan, probably most importantly, Le Zhuan, and, and uh, Van and Zap. Uh, uh, all of them, you know, throughout the 1960s, these were like kind of the most wanted in, on the American list, right? These were the guys who were the, the revolutionaries. Um, even though this was happening in Vietnam, Ho remained. In uh, both China and in, in the, um, the Soviet Union, kind of going in and out, um, he uh, you know he he ran into some trouble in both places, especially actually uh, in in the Soviet Union because um, he wanted the ICP and the Viet Minh to be a Vietnamese movement, not under the control of Moscow, and uh, he still believed that it it was useful to to reach out to. The kind of peasants who weren't part of the like the really rich, you know, landowning class. Um, so he was often criticized for working with class enemies, but he understood that the crucial element of Vietnamese politics was land, and so that was always like he went back to that whenever there was some kind of issue. You know, he pointed out that um, Vietnamese society couldn't be liberated, let alone become communist, until it addressed this problem of land, uh, because these French landholders and their Vietnamese friends, Vietnamese collaborators controlled like massive huge percentages of Vietnamese land and so the Vietnamese peasants had almost nothing and if you look at a lot of the revolutions that's that's kind of one of the key things like I I would often say in class Um, you know if you want to determine if something is revolutionary or not look at their position on land land reform right the in the Freedmen's Bureau right after the Civil War in the United States they were going to give land to ex-slaves and that lasted about 18 months because you know once you start redistributing land that's kind of that's kind of how almost how you determine whether you have a socialist revolution or not, or, or what kind of revolution it is, or what kind of movement it is, right? If you start taking land away, because you're, lo- you're not making new land, you're taking it. And so that's a big element. And that, and, and pretty much every level of Vietnamese society, except for the collaborators, um, supports that, you know, it's like, like today, right? Everybody supports, uh, huge numbers of Americans today are supporting uh, uh, some kind of national healthcare system, right? But you have
1: the, the kind of political leaders who are opposed to it. Or, or unemployment or, you know, increased, improved unemployment benefits, more than just it's, a single $1,200 check.
2: Exactly, right. And, and so you have these, these political leaders, you know, the Democratic Party who are useless and the labor leaders who are pretty much useless, just as much, they are just as much useless, right? And so you have this mass, right? And, and so, but Ho isn't like that. I mean, Ho's not Nancy. He's not Nancy Pelosi or, or Joe Biden at all. Um, Ho's biggest concern is always, you know, kind of what the French re- reprisal will be. Um... And, you know, he caught hell for it all the time. He was never, I mean, he had this kind of international global reputation as Uncle Ho. In Vietnam, I mean, he was often considered kind of a, not, not a sellout, but he went too slow. He was kind of thinking in old ways. Uh, he wasn't adequately revolutionary and, and things like that. So, um, you know, he, he caught flack all the time uh, among uh, the Vietnamese, right? Um, Ho also, was a, the beneficiary of a very great fortune in a lot of cases. Ho had a, uh, a particular idea, strategic idea, and I, I don't remember the Viennese phrase for it, but it was essentially called the opportune moment. And you wait for the opportune moment, right? And um, and so he would often, you know, some of his colleagues uh, would say, okay, you know, we need to in- increase the, the resistance to the French, or, you know, we need to get rid of all these collaborators or whatever. And Ho would often say to wait for the opportune moment. And, and generally, you know, he was right. He, he had this really keen understanding of, of, of global politics. So when World War II came, um, he was ready. And, you know, he kind of had a sense of what was going on in France uh, after it fell to, uh, uh, to the Nazis in, in May of 1940 and in Japan. Uh, and Japan, remember, was trying to create this kind of global, well, this Asian empire. And Ho understood that Vietnam would eventually uh, be part of that. So um, even though the French uh, held the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh, Ho's group, and um, you know, with great suspicion, uh, Ho kind of figured that the time was coming. And so they began organizing in the countryside, not in the cities, because it would be a lot easier. And um, they became, uh, in 1939, officially became a national liberation uh, front, and so the national liberation, not class struggle, actually took priority uh, because of uh, World War II. Um, the Japanese set their sights on Indochina, and, and in 1940, Japanese troops landed in Vietnam and began uh, – it was kind of a joint occupation, actually. The French never formally gave up control of Indochina, but there were Japanese uh, occupation forces there as well, right? Uh, amid that, in 1941, Ho came back to Vietnam. It was the first time he had been there in 25 or 30 years. Uh, he entered uh, 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 Vietnam, and actually, is, that's the point where he becomes Ho Chi Minh. He had used all kinds of nom de guerre before that. Uh, Ho Chi Minh means more or less he who enlightens. At one point, he was going by the name Nguyen Ai Cook, which meant Nguyen the Patriot, right? Uh, he, he lived in a cave, which he named Karl Marx, next to a river, which he named Lenin, and he distributed a newspaper and there worked to create uh, the Viet Minh and said, national liberation is our most important uh, issue. Um, he was then again arrested by, by uh, the Chinese, and the reason I mention that is because I get to read one of Ho's poems, which I really love, while well, he was uh, also a poet. And while he was in prison with the Chinese, uh, he wrote uh, these verses. Uh, and, and I think it says a lot about him, it's, it's, it's cool. Uh, Being chained is a luxury to compete for. The chained have somewhere to sleep, the unchained haven't. The state treats me to its rice. I lodge in its palaces. Its guards take turns escorting me. Really, the honor is too great. So uh, Ho kind of uh, mocking his, his time in prison uh, he was then let out, and then the Chinese began paying him, uh, which was really, you know, crazy. Um, and then um, things got serious. Uh, 1944, 1945, uh, World War II was coming to an end, and then obviously with the, uh, uh, the atomic bombings uh, in 1945, Japan was defeated. So this is kind of a pivotal time for... Um, uh, for the Viet Minh, right? Because now that Japan has been defeated, Ho and the Viet Minh, who had led the resistance, both to the Japanese and to the French, assumed, uh, and, and they had heard rhetoric coming out of people like Franklin Roosevelt about anti-colonialism, so they assumed that Vietnam would become a sovereign state, become an independent state. Um, the Viet Minh, you know, Ho even, you know, gave a statement when the war in the Pacific ended in August of 1945. He said, the Japanese army is crushed, the national salvation movement has spread to the whole country. The Viet Minh has millions of members from all social strata, intellectuals, peasants, workers, businessmen, soldiers, and from all nationalities. In the front, our compatriots march side by side without discriminating to age, sex, religion, or fortune." So Ho, again, is kind of taking this national front approach. Um, and then on, on, and I'm sure many of you are aware of this, on September 2nd, 1945, he went to uh, Ba Dinh Square in Hanoi with a crowd of maybe 500,000 people, and he issued a Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. And um, I'm sure you are all aware you know, how it began. Uh, uh, Ho's words that day were, all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Ho cribbed the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence from the American Declaration of Independence. He also allegedly, which is probably likely, wrote letters to Harry Truman. Trying to explain that even though they had a a communist revolution, they wanted to to work with the United States. They they admired the U.S. They they weren't enemies, and you know the U.S. claimed it never received them or anything like that. Um, As far as the U.S. was concerned, any movement that had any kind of socialist or communist uh, involvement was an enemy to the U.S. And in 1945, the United States was was really adamant about creating uh, kind of a a capitalist uh, trade area in Asia. So it wanted the Chinese, which weren't communist yet, and the Japanese to become you know, kind of bulwarks for capitalism in Asia, trade with the United States, and trade with other areas. So people like Ho Chi Minh were a threat to that, right? If the Vietnamese became communist, then Japan would lose this trading partner. So independence was denied. Uh, the French came back in, the U.S. supported it, and Ho, and, and I'm not going to, this is kind of, a, I think, a good kind of place to take it up to this uh, Ho um, actually, instead of uh, – now, the Viet Minh wanted to go to war. They wanted to create a, a, a national liberation struggle right there, a group, you know, guerrilla warfare. And um, Ho backed off. And it's uh, kind of one, of one of his most famous quotes. He said uh, that the era of the white man in Asia is dying out. And um, I would rather uh, sniff French shit for another five years than eat Chinese shit for another thousand so Ho basically said, I'm willing to let the French come back in. We'll have some kind of shared you know, a, a arrangement for power, and then they'll be gone because it's inevitable, and then we can have national independence. So uh, in 1946, Ho and the French uh, signed something called the Fontainebleau Agreement, which kind of was a, a power-sharing agreement. Uh, the Viet Minh weren't real happy about it. They weren't real happy uh, with Ho Xi si Minh and Ho again, you know, waiting for the opportune moment, kind of understood that even though he had good relations with some of the French commanders, uh, there were others in particular areas who weren't. And in Haiphong, uh, there was a, a, a French commander named De Bay, who um, he hated the Viet Minh, he wasn't, uh, you know, in, in any way uh, uh, cooperative with them. So, um, uh, he decided to crack down on the Viet Minh in Haiphong, which is a a, a port uh, in the in the kind of uh, northern area. It's, uh, in the in the nineteen uh, what I forget when it was Richard Nixon mined Haiphong, uh, serious escalation of the war. So in 1946 in November, uh, De Bay opened fire on Viet Minh positions, and uh, over the course of the next 24 hours, killed about 6,000 Vietnamese, wounded another 25,000. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, the state that Ho had issued and created, uh, declared all agreements with the French to be null and void and the first Indochina war began. Right? Um, from that point on, we'll talk about that later because I think the American period, I think people know a lot more about that, but I wanted to kind of give you Ho's background because I think it's really fascinating. He's in and out of prisons, he's in and out of uh, China and the Soviet Union. He's in and out of hot water with his own comrades and allies in the Indochinese Communist Party and the Vietnam movement. But he always figures a way out. He's a strategic brilliant, you know, strategic brilliance. He's just always kind of aware of what's happening and thinking way ahead of everybody else, you know, kind of like the old uh, cliche about playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. And you're going to see that throughout the rest of his life. So um, that's how up to the first Indochina war, and the Americans are about to come in. And so that's kind of a good place to break, and we
1: can talk about uh, Malcolm Little. What, one quick question. Um, you know, talking about ho in and out of prison, traveling around the world. I know at one point he worked as a dishwasher in New York City. Yes, he, like yes. he lived for a period in in, in Paris. Yep. Uh, during the um, uh, at the end of World War One, he tried to get Woodrow Wilson to like support yes. independence in Vietnam. And so one of the things that's going to come up when we talk about Malcolm is that you know he Malcolm X is that he like. He traveled internationally once he kind of like moved into a little bit more prominence within the Nation of Islam. And he was like big on this idea that like he didn't actually change any of his ideas or values, but he broadened his horizons, which actually made him much more of an effective, what's called advocate, right? Revolutionary, you know, et cetera. And and so it's an interesting contrast between like Ho and Malcolm uh, in the.
2: Well, when we first started talking about doing this, you know, I think that was one of the first things we talked about. Um, I mean, Ho was raised, you know, at the the foot of his father and and people like Fun Boy Chow. So he was raised on this nationalist ideal and and becoming a communist in Paris wasn't very hard either. Uh, But and he genuinely admired. I mean, that's hard to believe, right, because we grew up in a different era. But, you know, um, independence figures, uh, people who believe in national liberation kind of admired the United States, you know, until really really, until, until the Vietnam War, really, until like the 1960s. So Ho, I mean, that 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 kind of uh, – when he, you know, used the, the Declaration of Independence, that was kind of genuine. It wasn't just a ploy. Uh, a lot of revolutionary figures, you know, until that period looked up to the U.S. as this kind of beacon, and FDR's rhetoric was anti-colonial during World War II. And yeah, he did absolutely broaden uh, what he believed in, right? And um, and I think, you know, if you look at today, you know, I, th- I think there's still these similarities. I think most Americans still have this idea of exceptionalism and don't realize like how the rest of the world views the United States. And, and clearly that Ho had a, a, a really superlative reputation globally. Yeah. Uh, you know, people admired him. Uh, third world people obviously saw him as iconic, right? Yeah. The US is calling him the new, the new Hitler, which was laughable
1: to everybody else in, except for you know some Americans. You know, um shifting to, to Malcolm X a little bit because I actually feel like this is touching on a little bit more also where there's some similarities between Ho and Malcolm, but I don't want to, I want to kind of give the, the background on Malcolm before we, before we go there. Um, uh, yeah, so like Malcolm X um, is a, a very known cultural iconic figure, particularly in the U.S., particularly in, in Black America. He was born uh, Malcolm Little, um, kind of... Kind of prepping for the for the talk today, I researched through a whole bunch of different things. I've actually there's a new book out called "The Sword and the Shield," which is about the revolutionary lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King by Penny Joseph, who's a academic at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, like kind of three themes. There's mul- multiple themes like kind of arose as I was prepping, but like three that really sort of like kind of stuck out at me. Sh- stuck out at me is one. Malcolm was seen as black America's uh, prosecuting attorney. He was often called that. And um, he he was called that, I, I would say the kind of short answer to that is that he promoted a bold struggle, struggle against white supremacy as the corollary to a, um, a passionate crusade for, for black dignity. And so that's gonna be like a little bit, that's a very important piece of who Malcolm is Another is that he's a working class hero. He worked as a day laborer, a factory worker, a Pullman car worker. Um, he was also like a thief and a hustler and a pimp at one point in his life, which landed him in prison. And then um, a really actually kind of key description that I found was that he was Black America's revolutionary truth teller, and that while people in the civil rights movement were you know using strategic nonviolent direct action to sort of push envelopes, particularly in the segregationist South. You know, Malcolm was um, eviscerating sort of like political, historic, cultural sort of uh, totems of white supremacy, basically through like powerful rhetoric, and speeches, as well as organizing. Um, you know, he once said that whenever a Negro fights for democracy, he's fighting for something he has not got, never had, and never will have. Uh, and it's like a kind of really important piece is that like there's these American little D democratic institutions that uh, like for instance, Martin Luther King and the, and the civil rights movement were actually trying to just like sort of like caress and use um, this one particular strategy which is nonviolent direct action. Whereas like Malcolm was looking to like completely uh, discredit and even like Put an end to any like notion that those were meant to work for everyone, um, and just a little background on Malcolm. Um, Malcolm, based, Malcolm Hatt was born Malcolm Little, nineteen twenty-five, to uh, Garveyite parents. His parents were followers of Mar- Marcus Garvey, who were also who also was a, a sort of black liberationist, black empowerment uh, activist in the nineteen twenties. Um, his father, Earl, was mur- murdered, uh, most likely. Um, it was ruled as an accident. That he said he was mur- uh, hit by a streetcar, but um, there's also evidence pointing that he was murdered when Malcolm was six. His mother actually had a, mu- a mental breakdown about six years later when Malcolm was 12 and was institutionalized, and Malcolm ended up living in a series of foster homes. Um, by the 1940s, Malcolm uh, entered a like sort of life of crime, and he was um, known as Detroit Red. Um, ironically, he, when he was Detroit Red in the 1940s in Harlem, and he moved around to a couple different places, he lived in Lansing, Michigan, he lived in Boston, he lived in New York, uh, but he was actually working at a, as a dishwasher in a, like a, I think a chicken restaurant in Harlem. And the person he worked with was known as Chicago Red, and Chicago Red uh, actually became a very popular comedian and actor known as Red Fox. There's um, an interesting little sort of overlap there, but Malcolm had a hard scrabble life. I mean, that's kind of the best way to describe it. He not only had a number of these working-class jobs, which I kind of mentioned before, but then he also you know, lived as a drug dealer, a thief, a pimp. Um, in 1946, he was arrested for a series of burglaries and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Uh, he served about six of those um and in prison is where he kind of goes through his transformation uh and in prison he educated himself he became a voracious reader i mean that's where he got his undergrad and his grad degrees was in um prisons in the in 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 the northeast um and when he um as he began to educate himself and sort of believe in this idea of like you know radical dignity of 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 black America and black Americans. Um, It's also when he converted to Islam and he uh, had written a letter to Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of the nation of um, Islam. And Muhammad had advised him to renounce his past and humbly bow in prayer to God and uh, promise never to engage in destructive behavior again. It was also in this period where he changed his name from Malcolm Little to Malcolm X While he's in prison, he's quoted as saying, uh, "For me, my ex represented the white slave master name of Little, which had, which some blue-eyed devil named Little had imposed upon my paternal forebears." Um, And so, once he enters the once he gets out of prison, he becomes a uh, minister in the Nation of Islam, and uh, he—that's in 1952. Um, and he is a, um, actually very, um, he's a good organizer and he's a good minister and he's a good, he's a good speaker. And so he actually moved up pretty quickly in the, in the nation. He, uh, he started out in Detroit, um, uh, he, as a, as an assistant minister, but eventually he like went to Boston and started the, uh, the Muslim temple there, the nation of Islam temple there. And then 1954, he became the minister at temple number seven in Harlem, uh, which he himself rapidly expanding the membership, r- rapidly expanding the membership of that temple. At that point, the nation of Islam had really only had presences in Detroit and Chicago. It was very weak. Everyone else until Malcolm got involved in the, in the, uh, um, in the, in, in the nation. I will say that sort of really important piece is that in in many ways, Harlem is seen as the capital of black America. And so Malcolm is actually able to go and start, um, as a minister there, start temple number seven and, um, basically became a very influential figure in that community. Um, I'll also say that, like I said, he was a good organizer. He was a very strong organizer as a person who, uh, Um, you know, you know, that's my craft, is organizing. Um, Malcolm basically rapidly expanded the membership of the Nation of Islam through the 1950s and the early 60s um, by one estimate from 500 members to 25,000 members. Another estimate is like from 1,200 to 75,000. And so Malcolm actually met people where they're at and brought them into the nation by speaking to them about survival in the most dangerous struggle for black Americans, which was the struggle of being part of uh, America's permanent racial underclass. He's also known for inspiring and recruiting Cassius Clay, the boxer to convert to Islam, uh, and became Muhammad Ali. He was a mentor to Louis X, Louis Farrakhan, who's been a more uh, contemporary leader of the Nation of Islam. And he was also a mentor to uh, Wallace Muhammad, who was Elijah Muhammad's son and actually Parted ways with his father over their uh, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad's uh, split. Um, he also was a very charismatic speaker. He was a very powerful speaker. Um, he cult- he cultivated relations with journalists and actually developed a persona as a as a public intellectual. He debated civil rights figures, you know, white politicians, white intellectuals, um, and uh, basically became in many ways the face of the sort of black re- radicalism which began growing in the 1950s and 1960s.
2: When, um, let me just, um, he had a famous interview with Mike Wallace before the days of 60 Minutes. And think, isn't that what kind of made him like this genuine national figure? Isn't that really when kind of everything kind of uh, got like much
1: bigger, immense, really? It was a huge shift. It was, a, it was actually a yeah. documentary that came out in 1950. Oh, right, right, The Hate
2: That Hate Created or something yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Hate the Hate That
1: Hate Created. And, and so he became much more of a, a public figure um, with that. But he also, it, it's, it's very interesting because it actually talks a lot about in these cities where in these, in these places where these temples have started, he also uses direct action. Um, there was a um, pretty famous case of Hinton Johnson who was a Muslim who had actually you know, been beaten up and nearly lost his life uh, to the NYPD Malcolm organized thousands of people, where people bust in from outside of, of New York to basically join this massive protest, um, basically going back and forth between the, the precinct house and the hospital. He did a similar thing in Los Angeles, which actually it was one of the things that led to his split with the nation. Um, but. He was very popular with the membership of the nation and growing popularity with other black Americans. And then he also got on like white America's radar. And it was like the sort of face of the black radicals. Um, I'll say a couple of other things that was like really sort of like what his, that I put in here, cause I thought it was actually pretty important for his rhetoric. Uh, he said things like Mississippi wasn't in America, Mississippi was America, right? So like, the idea that like only segregation, only racial violence, only racial hate happens in Mississippi is like just a complete falsehood. Um, he said this to him, the South was everything South of Canada. Um, Bob's laughing. Uh, he said in the South that the symbol of racism were people in white hoods, but everywhere else in the US it was the police uniform. Uh, and so he had this single focus on racial justice and, and, and radical dignity for, for black people in America. Um, there's a uh, quote. He also very much early on pitted himself as an adversary to the civil rights movement and to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in, in particular. Um, after the uh, uh, 1963, August 1963 March on Washington, uh, he said, Yesterday our people used to look upon the American system as an American dream, but the black people today are beginning to realize. Is an American nightmare. What is a dream to you is a nightmare to us. And so he basically lays the foundation for what becomes more popularly popularly known as black power in America. And so like the Black Panthers, um, even in kind of more contemporary stuff, which I think we're gonna talk about later when we talk about some legacies, is that he really lays the sort of groundwork for that. And he becomes the face of this Black radical movement. And in a sense, there's like two movements. There's the civil rights movement, and then there's the kind of movement for black radicalism, which becomes more aligned with black power. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then the other thing that he does is this is also when he becomes a sort of international, he, he becomes an international traveler and quickly morphs into this radical. International statesman for Black America, and, you know he travels around the world, p- predominantly in Africa, but also in the Middle East. He's most known for his like 1964 trip to uh, where he went to the he did, he went on Hajj to Mecca, but like he had also been cultivating contacts in Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, Guinea, Sudan, Senegal, Algeria, Morocco, and and other places. Um, and he attended the uh, the second meeting of the Organization of African Unity um, in Cairo. Um, when, after he splits with the Nation of Islam, he forms what's called the Organization of Afro-American Unity uh, and m- aligns himself with struggle in the Third World, which I think is really important. It's actually also something that's not really talked about when we talk about the, hi- the history of Malcolm X. Um, it's a very important piece. Uh, he also gave speeches to huge crowds in England and, and France. He actually goes to France at one point speaks to a thousand people, tries to go back three months later, they won't let him in the country. Um, He's also very known for disagreeing with the civil rights movement strategies of nonviolence. Um, He actually thought the civil rights movement were sellouts and um, in his opinion, the August 1963 March on Washington was an event choreographed by the Kennedy administration more than anything else. Um, But I I think kind of like an important piece here is that he is a uh, um, a big supporter of um, this sort of like racial justice, not just in the U.S. but from America to Africa to Asia, and it's um, what he sort of promotes. And it's actually one of the things that becomes a threat, not just to the sort of white establishment, but also to um, also to his you know Elijah Muhammad and the Nation. I have a clip that I was going to play. Is that cool? Sure yeah so this is actually uh, a speech called um message uh to the grassroots uh from malcolm x and he bit, he gave this speech um in november 1963 partially as a response to martin luther king's speech um uh, at the March on washington and i cued it up to an important part <laughs> That's no revolution, (laughs) revolution is based on
0: land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. The white man knows where the revolution is. He knows that the black revolution is worldwide, in scope, and in nature. The black revolution is sweeping Asia, sweeping Africa. It's rearing its head in Latin America. The Cuban Revolution, that's a revolution. They overturned the system. (laughs) Revolution is in Asia. Revolution is in Africa. And the white man is screaming because he sees revolution in Latin America. How do you think he'll react to you when you learn what a real revolution is? You don't know what a revolution is. If you did, you wouldn't use that word a revolution is bloody revolution is hostile revolution knows no compromise revolution overturns and destroys everything that gets in its way and you sitting around here like a not on these folks no matter how
1: much they hate me no you need a revolution so uh one of the things that he actually does in that speech is he actually taught that's where he kind of like famously talks about the house negro and the field negro and the difference um between sort of like the black muslim movement and and the civil rights movement um and you know he does a good bit of sort of like alienating king and, and and the people like in king's in king's camp but also there's people in king's camp who you know, were sort of mentors to King, people like Baird Rustin, who also became mentors to Malcolm and like sort of like strongly influenced him. Um, and so uh, it's a, it's an interesting contrast. I, I sometimes, you know, thinking we, I also sort of, I, I, feel, I feel like some of this is just like a, a, a sort of different perspective between the civil rights movement and the black radical movement. I also feel like there's a class element here. Like Malcolm actually did a lot of work to, you know, organized people in the ghetto. I mean, like he, he like I said, he had a hard scrabble life. Um, he's like known for turning lots of people in, in urban black America into the nation, getting like former prisoners into the nation. He himself is a former prisoner. Whereas like Martin Luther King comes from this more middle-class educated sort of background. Uh, the, the Sword and the Shield book actually makes a point of when Martin Luther King is actually in grad school getting a, a, a doctorate, Malcolm X is in grad school of prison sort of like, also, like, really sort of, like, solidifying his, like, um, his politics. Um, And
2: that that speech there, you know, I think it's really because we're talking about Ho and and, and Malcolm, and he talks about land, right, and which is exactly what uh, Ho Chi Minh's point was in Vietnam, land, right? And so, you know, again, like I said, that's kind of like if you want to determine how radical or whether something is radical, you know, look at at a position on kind of redistribution, right? because, you know, liberals don't want to redistribute actual wealth. They want to kind of give you a little bit to, 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 to throw you off, right? And, and and the other part of that that I think is really important, and, and I know we want to talk about this, is these guys are in the same circles for, for a good period of time. I mean, in the 1960s, let's say, especially, if you went to, to Cuba or to Vietnam or to Algeria or to, to South Africa or to Harlem, you would hear people talking about uh, Ho Chi Minh and, and Malcolm X. The Black Panthers talked about Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X. Um, you know, so these guys really are part of a global movement. And, and outside of the United States, people recognize that inside the United States, Malcolm and Ho were considered, you know, diabolical, demonic, right? Uh, but they were really part of this bigger global movement, you know, and, and it was uh, Arafat and Fidel and um, Sukarno in, in Indonesia, Zedong. Uh, Mandela and the ANC in, in South Africa, Sankara later. So, you know, there, he's like really more important than just this national leader for black Americans. There's this global movement and he's a big part of it all over the world. He, I mean, when you mentioned going to England, he debated at Oxford and you know, at the end they always have
1: people cheer. He won the debate. Yeah, yep. he, he actually saw him in many ways as a sort of international statesman to, to the global south, to revolutionaries uh, for black America. Uh, it's a it's I mean a, when,
2: when when Fidel came to New York after uh after the revolution he, he met Malcolm he wanted to meet Malcolm he specifically requested that so yeah I mean Malcolm X is more than just this kind of black nationalist leader this almost novelty or curiosity in the United States this guy's a global leader for uh, liberation for revolution much like like Ho Chi Minh Ho Chi Minh's probably Ho and Fidel I think are probably the most famous in the world but Malcolm is 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 up there and everybody knows him and um, well respected, well regarded, you know, uh, by by people
1: all over the, you know, basically the non the non Western world. I, I also I think it's an interesting point that you make about the liberal establishment is that like you know Malcolm is more in this sort of like global revolutionary sort of like camp or thought camp anyway where like people in the civil rights movement are definitely much more like collaborative with the liberal democratic presence in the nineteen sixties, um, and and like and like you know, the the struggle in Harlem is as real as the struggle in in North Vietnam or South Vietnam as it is in Africa, as it is in the Middle East. Um, And Malcolm actually got himself, um, he know, like I've been kind of alluding to, he kind of has a split with the the Nation of Islam in 1964, and it was over a couple of things. Uh, One was that there was a LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, raid on a, a temple that Malcolm founded that led to at least one Muslim being, black Muslim in the, in the temple being shot and killed by the police and another one being paralyzed. And Malcolm wanted to like sort of respond in like force uh, to the LAPD and uh, the, the leadership of the Nation of Islam, but to predominantly, uh, mostly Elijah Muhammad wouldn't let him do that. But then another thing that actually leads to the split is he has some off color comments about uh, JFK which I was going to actually, um, he, he actually has some remarks, which weren't recorded. I think they were said in a written interview about the JFK assassination, which is chickens coming home to roost never did make me sad. They always made me glad. Um, and I actually have a, another clip that I was going to play. Um, it's a sort of follow. He actually got put on like a 90-day, like do not talk to anyone, sort of banned by the nation. It's when he was still in. And this is his first talk to a reporter after that. So I'm gonna play this real quick.
0: Some months ago, with your leader, is that over? Well, I've been I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the president of the United States, uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And yes, and, what did you and, say, and, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only only I said the chickens came home to roof, and which means the same thing. Uh, uh, climate of hate means that this is this is the result of something. And when I said chickens coming home to roof, I mean uh, chickens coming home to the roof, I said the same thing but did you did you did not say that you were glad the president was killed no that's what the press said uh-huh. what would I look like saying that I'm glad the president was killed Malcolm this was your first public
1: so you know that's actually what leads to the sort of split he becomes like he becomes this figure that is uh you know he's invited to go meet with Nasser in Egypt and like the president of Ghana and and at one point in at one point before the end of his life he's actually invited to join the governments there um and and it like really sort of like leads to a um a collapse of his relationship in the nation of islam which has also been the sort of like platform in which he's used to kind of put himself in the prominence there's also um Malcolm is actually also seen as a a figure of like great integrity uh and Uh, It turns out that, you know, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has, like, sex scandals where he's had, he has, you know, relationships with, like, many young women within the nation, uh, including, I actually read that he has at least, like, six illegitimate children. He had at least six illegitimate children with women, and so, like, Malcolm was also, like, not happy about that as well, Um, and so he leaves the nation in 1964, uh, but he... Is basically still this prominent figure and has a lot of people who go with him. It also leads to a where he lives this lot, li- the part of his life with just like death threats from the Nation of Islam.
2: Um, you know, I think that uh, that that kind of personal element, that respect, is is actually important in both of these cases because that was the whole, You know, I mean, part of it was cultivated the Uncle Ho image, but um, Ho was always widely respected within the movement. Um, you know, Ho had breaks, too. Uh, uh, in 1956, Chen was probably his best friend, and there was a kind of a land redistribution movement, and, and uh, peasants were upset, and they marched on the capital. and Chongqing sent troops out, and Ho removed Chongqing from power, even though it was his best friend. Um, so, they were both able to kind of see through that and, and understood what was kind of, you know, important, I think, in the larger uh, construct, but... Um, you know, the Viet Minh in the Viet Minh's platform and in, in all of their documents talked about equality uh, between men and women. Um, uh, I don't know whether they actually did it, but um, if you were caught abusing a woman, I believe that could have the death penalty if you were like, you know, in the, in the, you know, in the Viet Minh. Um, a, a lot of women fought in, in the war against the French and, and against the Americans. So I think they both had that kind of understanding that there was this kind of uh, larger uh, world out there. Um, Ho never specifically talked about things like white supremacy, but they clearly both operated in a world where they knew it existed. Um, you know, uh, Ho didn't make the war in Vietnam one of, you know, Asians versus Westerners, but um, a lot of other people did. And so they were both, I think, fighting against the same, the same thing, right? This kind of global power structure. Uh, Malcolm didn't really talk about capitalism, but if you're talking about land and power, that's what you're talking about. And so I think they both, you know, again, kind of fit into that, that same historical uh, period. And they're really critical uh, globally and inspirational to a lot of people. I mean, you know, if, if you talk to somebody who considered him or herself a revolutionary in 1970, you probably hear both both those names come up, Minh and, and Malcolm X.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like when I think about that era, there's a few, a sort of handful of historical figures which are, are important. And I, I feel like, those are two that's two of the top five to me right
2: yeah yeah i mean castro and, and people like that and i think you know when you have people like today who don't remember that era or are really far removed from it and may know a little bit about it um it's kind of hard to understand you know that was like uh, those movements had real momentum and real real power uh you know and it, it terrified the global ruling class it really did because you had these national liberation movements and I mean, Cuba and Vietnam both essentially defeated the United States, right, in in the 1960s and 70s, which is really remarkable, right? I mean, U.S. coming out of the Cold War had this immense power, right, uh, and, you know, to use against the Soviet Union. Well, these two third world liberation movements in Cuba and in, and in Vietnam, and the Cubans always respected the Vietnamese because, I mean, if you go to Cuba, there are all kinds of statues of Ho Chi Minh, and there's stuff named after Ho Chi Minh, and the Vietnamese— um, I went to a bookstore in Havana, and there was a, a Vietnamese flag, you know, on the on the front in the window. Uh, the Cubans always said, "Look, if if the Vietnamese hadn't been fighting the Americans, that probably would have been us. The Americans probably would have had troops in, in Havana, and so they they saved us. They really kind of took the blows that we might have gotten otherwise. So there was always a great deal of solidarity. What's that? What's that great Che quote? Where it was like what we two, need three, to many point. Vietnams? Yeah. yeah, yeah, two, three, many Vietnams, right.' And I mean, Malcolm spoke out against the Vietnam War, Uh, but, you know, and and the one thing, because we talked about this about a month or so ago, and we talked about Martin Luther King, because you really kind of, King fits into these two as well. And, you know, Malcolm was very harsh on King, and, and we've talked about that too. But King, you know, especially after the Civil and Voting Rights Acts, kind of really starts to move in those directions as well, where he specifically talks about the Vietnam War, And, you know, a lot of people, you know, Malcolm could be very harsh toward King. I believe he actually referred to him as an Uncle Tom on more than one occasion. Uh, But King went to jail. King had assassination attempts. You know, he he was assassinated ultimately. So it's a little more complex than Malcolm versus Martin Luther King. I haven't read the the Peniel Joseph book yet. I I think I've mentioned this on a previous podcast about 20-some years ago or something. James Cohn wrote a book uh, called Martin and Malcolm in America. Um, and I don't know how similar or different it is from, from Peniel Joseph, who's an outstanding historian. Uh, and, and Combs points out in the very last chapters that they're really kind of converging. Their ideas by, you know, the last year of each of their lives are becoming pretty similar. And I don't know, does Joseph talk about that?
1: Oh, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a big theme of, that's a big theme of the book about how they were sort of on these parallel tracks, like civil rights movement and black radicalism, right? Black nationalism. Yeah. And, you know, it begins to converge. Both of them become like, like like I said when we were talking about Ho is that like they both travel internationally, they both begin to have their horizons broadened. honestly, the the book talks some about like Malcolm actually beginning to flirt with socialism and how we need alternatives to capitalism to uh, really kind of deal with the legacy of slavery and racism in America, which we you know we talked about before that that King basically identified as a democratic socialist. Um, it also kind of like when Malcolm splits with the nation uh he becomes more open to like working with the civil rights movement he actually sees them he actually becomes a big advocate of like black empowerment and a, and a sort of black voting block. it's like well if the white people are going to vote on republicans on one side and democrats on the other if we have a solid black voting block, we can tip it one way or the other he becomes a big advocate of like of like participating in these little d democratic american institutions which he had been pretty critical of before because he didn't ever think they Really worked for for Black America, which is you know mo- is pretty true. Um, and but there's this convergence between him and King. There's also a point, you know, he's assassinated in February of 1965, uh, Malcolm is, and and Joseph actually talks a little bit about how um, uh, how King begins to almost channel Malcolm in his like you know some of his economic justice, uh, and and then also being critical of the war in Vietnam.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, that, the movement is there are two very different movements pointed out or, you know, early on in the United States. You have this this kind of political civil rights movement in, in the South, right, where it's basically a, a question of, of constitutional and, and human rights. Like, you know, you should be able to, to go to school and ride a bus just by virtue of being born. Um, you can do that in the north. But in the north, it's a real class issue where you have these these, you know, kind of ghettos and these people who, you know, uh, uh, um, living, you know, in substandard housing, they don't get jobs, they're shut out of jobs by unions and by factories. And so it's, it's very different. And, and, and King didn't really grasp that until he started to go up to the North, just how, how, what that situation was like. And, and that's why, yeah, I love the Malcolm, you know, when, uh, Malcolm's observation, you know, when they talk about the South, I think of everything below Canada. And, and, you know, cause King was essentially, that was a Southern movement. That was, that was the Confederacy, that was the old Confederacy that they were trying to kind of drag out of apartheid and they did it. And I think to King's credit, you know, he, he really moved beyond that and becomes kind of a class leader in that regard. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of it is, is strategic, much like Ho and his comrades. I mean, Ho caught a lot of, lot of hell from people uh, for, you know, being too, uh, you know, ameliorative toward the French. Um, I mean, even when in 1960, when the, the NLF was formed, it began a, a kind of a, a war of liberation. Um, Ho was reluctant. Uh, Le Zouan was, was much bigger in, in kind of uh, getting that going in the late 50s up to 1960. He was the, uh, the, uh, the uh, NLF representative. He was a representative to the NLF in the South from the North. He was the Girls representative. But Ho was always kind of a little more careful in, in that regard. But at the end of the day, they were all revolutionaries. And, you know, I think that's true of Malcolm, and I think toward the end of his life, it's true of King as well. And and you know, and there's something else I think that's important, and and you know, we can talk about this because because nowadays um, there is a left in America, and we could we need to have like ten shows on that, right? But um, the American left I think we've to, almost had twenty
1: now, so yeah,
2: and they're pretty much on the same thing. Um, but the left in America is, tends to be focused on America, right? Bernie Sanders, Howie Hawkins, are we going to vote for this guy or that guy or you know whatever. Um, and it's real hard to see this kind of internationalism. And I know the the left on which I was raised, and I think you were raised as well, um, was internationalist. And so you know you couldn't have a left program in the United States, a program based on class or liberation, you know, whatever, unless you also opposed colonialism abroad. And I think it's really hard to see that today among a lot of these left stream main mainstream. I mean. It wasn't, I mean, a lot of Democrats, democratic senators opposed to Vietnam War, right? Whereas nowadays you can put this, this gangster thug and try to put him in power in Venezuela. The Democrats are cool with it. Um, you know, you give Netanyahu's terrorist government uh, how many billions of dollars the Democrats are cool with it. Uh, you know, you overthrow no. government. I mean, uh, Obama overthrew uh, governments in, in Honduras and Libya. Democrats are cool with
1: it Hillary Clinton blagged about killing people, you know so assassination assassinate drone assassination programs democrat the Democrats did that, you know, but then also like they 're cool with like the recent political assassinations around Iranian leaders in Iraq and the Iraqi militias aligned with Iran. Yeah, the Democrats have no problem with that I
2: mean, Ilhan Omar voted with uh, for an APAC based resolution against the Iran, right. And I think that's important. Like, we need to get back to that. I, I don't see how you can have this, this left movement unless you also address, I mean, as long as the U.S. is creating this mayhem abroad, that's, that's repressing people at home, too. Right? That globalization represses Americans as well. And so, you know, you're not going to suddenly get Youngstown and Detroit and Pittsburgh back to where they were uh, unless you, you know, really change the world. And and I think Malcolm and, and Ho and a lot of other people, but Ho and Malcolm we're talking about right now, really understood that. They understood this key, these kind of global interconnections. And a lot of people were inspired by that all over, in Vietnam, in Harlem, in Havana, in Johannesburg, uh, you know, where Jakarta, you know, I could go on and on and on, Chile, um, you know, there was this global movement. And I think young folks need to, to, to discover that. I mean, you need to read about that and, and, and learn about it. Um, you know, there was a time when the left I think had this global momentum, and now we're just kind of isolated and we're kind of fighting for scraps in our particular little areas here
1: yeah i mean i think I think that's an important point i I feel like when i was when we were doing any war work, we were very much like sort of rooted in that or grounded in that, and I think you know that was like two thousand and three. 2004 and now like in 2020 like i I feel like that sort of like thought you know that popular thought within even just like you know movement circles like people who are hitting the streets and people who are organizing things it's like now it's more like hey yeah we're part of the left and let's get some new legislation that we can get everybody to agree on like the green new deal and then and then like and we're the left and i and i I find that like deeply problematic. I I find it deeply problematic that even like outlets, um, other media outlets who identify as being leftist or socialist are, um, you know, not, you know, necessarily down with that program of like sort of, uh, of international solidarity. And it's just a few outliers who are often sort of like just completely marginalized when they like, you know, occupy the Venezuelan, consulate in dc for example and it's it's a bunch of old lefties and it's a bunch of marginalized people who all and the old lefties get marginalized as well
2: yeah i mean you know uh several months ago I don't know, maybe a year ago now somebody put out a petition in support of iran when trump was beginning to you know uh leave the uh the uh the pact and and it it ended up dying because the, the it didn't denounce the iranian government enough right and and i get it but you know i I'm not going to defend the Iranian government, but I also I'll sign a petition that says stay out of Iran. You know, and and I think the left has all these kind of purity tests and these these kind of requirements. Um, like these aren't, you know, I, I call it the Rosa Parks syndrome. You want your side to be pure. And, and that's not always going to be the case. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to defend the Iran. I'm not going to defend the Chinese government. But I think it's absurd to blame China for covid. This Blame China stuff is absolute bullshit, right? right. Can't tell because, oh, look at their, yeah, of course, I don't care. They're repressive government. That's not the point, you know? As long as you have these, these, these di- distinctions globally, first of all, you can get really cheap labor in these places, right? I mean, when the United States takes control of a society, then that means you get cheap labor there, right? It's, it's, I mean, that's why they're doing it. They're doing it for materials and resources and, and cheap labor and, and markets and investment. And so that damages the American working class. And I think that's the part that, that we have to understand. America's role abroad, the, the role of capitalism, the role of American capitalists abroad damages the American working class. Right? And I think that alone, I mean, if you want to turn it into a nationalist crusade for American lefties, then, then that's the way to do it. But it's there. And that's what these guys were talking about. And this was, a, you know, a, a really a, a global movement. And I'm getting all fired up now because I haven't thought about this for a long time, you know, and... Um, you know, I came out of, uh, May 19th, for are the M19
1: movement here, folks. M19, <laughs>
2: that's right, man. We're going to, yeah, we're going to start the, the green, uh, red M19 cell. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: Ohio, um, Berkeley access.
2: Yeah. But, you know, I think both of us were mentored by people who came out of this, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so it was really just kind of a part of our foundational, uh, you know, understanding of the left, you know, that there is this global movement and if people really did great stuff, I mean. You've been to Vietnam. You you went to Ho's uh, Mausoleum, right? Twice. Twice in a week. And and I went to Chase and Santa Clara. And I think we both said it was the same thing. It was chilling. It was stunning. We
1: were like, it was overwhelming, right? Yeah. Well, that, well I mean, the, the line was around the block. And it's it is like this sort of it, it, it's this sort of like moment moment in my life particularly the first time I went I went back the second time because I had some friends who joined me in Hanoi but like this sort of moment is like it's this sort of like it, it, sometimes I have this moment where it's like these profound things hit me and it's like the sky is falling or something like that and that's how mm-hmm. I felt uh, unfortunately they also move you through the, the viewing of Ho very quickly so you can't actually stop and look you just have to kind of walk slowly but it's, yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a powerful moment I'll, I'll say that
2: and, and Chase tomb at Santa Clara, which you actually spend more time in. And it's, you know, I grew up Catholic. I was an altar boy. And what I felt in Chase tomb was
1: what they always said, you're supposed to feel in church, but I never did. <laughs> it was beatific. It was really powerful. And, you and know, and I, I actually traveled to Argentina and spent most of the time in Buenos Aires, but I also went to Rosario, which is his hometown where he was born. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then there's like a huge statue of him, which is now it's just like a statue in a park. But that was also kind of a profound moment for me yeah. as well.
2: Well, and, and, you know, the, the person you share a birthday with, Karl Marx, you know, if you visit his, his uh, tombstone at Highgate, it's the same thing. Yeah. The point there is that there are these, these, signal, these signature figures and who meant right. more? I mean, Ho wasn't just a Vietnamese, you know, liberator. He was, like, Bolivar wasn't just a, you know, a Latin American liberator. He was bigger than that. And Fidel was bigger than that. Yeah. And, and, you know, as Americans, I think, you know, as American lefties, we, we need to know that.
1: I, one of the things I find, I find really interesting about Malcolm is just like kind of, as I was reading and kind of thinking about this uh, prepping for this episode is that like Malcolm is, is actually a pretty significant figure in the American left, at least second half of the 20th century. And like often I have felt like a lot of those figures are sort of like marginalized or forgotten or they're co-opted like King. And it is interesting how like in the 1990s, we see Malcolm X become much more mainstream And there's a lot of pieces of what we've talked about today, which are like sort of left out of the story, but like, you know, 1990s like autobiography of Malcolm X is actually pretty widely read. It's actually assigned in schools. It's assigned in college, it's in high school, college, sort of reading. Spike Lee made a movie called uh, Malcolm X, which is actually very popular, starring Denzel Washington. And then he also became very popular through like rap music, rap lyrics, music video, things like that, to the point where they made a U.S. postage stamp at him and of him. Um, and then, and then, uh, it's this sort of like kind of framework gets laid for, um, Malcolm. Um, and I actually feel like some of the current, uh, movements around racial justice, around Black Lives Matter, things like that, I've actually, um, bringing Malcolm back up in the, in the 1990s actually was this, um, it laid the groundwork for some of the in a way he redefined black political culture. And I feel like Malcolm and him becoming more mainstream in the nineties, you know, 30 years after his death, 25 to 20, 30 years after his death, is actually really important. And even though we think he's a neoliberal sellout, mm-hmm. it's actually important for like, I feel like for Obama getting elected, like, like as mm-hmm. our first black president, you know, Americans also need to be like somewhat accepting of Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X's legacies.
2: I never knew Malcolm was on a postage stamp. Wow, that's, that's, he's made it, right? That's- that's Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, Ho's legacy is is interesting too because you he's going past his mausoleum. um, In Ho's testament, he wanted, uh, he gave orders, you know, directions to be cremated and he wanted his ashes spread over all of Vietnam to to represent the unity of Vietnam, the unification. And the party, And he, he, toward, I mean, by the mid 60s, he was kind of, his health was fading, he died in 1969. His health was fading, and I think the hardliners um, tended to gain control of, of uh, uh, power in Hanoi. Now, there's a lot of new scholarship on Vietnam, and we'll talk about this because it's a totally separate subject, which is kind of saying, oh, Ho was kind of uh, just a figurehead for the last 10 years. That's not true. Ho still had a great deal of influence. Ho and Zap both had a great deal of influence, but clearly by the mid-60s, he, he became very important uh, to Hanoi. And so when he died, instead of, you know, following his wishes and, and cremating him and, you know, spreading his ashes all over Vietnam, um, they made him, you know, they put him in this mausoleum, kind of like Lenin in, in Moscow. In, Mao, a- in Mao. Right, right. And, and which is unfortunate. Um, and then in the 80s, uh, the Vietnamese government uh, really made a turn away from the kind of socialism that Ho had advocated. And, you know, to a large degree, that's because the U.S., reneged on uh, reparations that it promised, and the IMF and the World Bank wouldn't give them any money. So they had to kind of do this, you know, kind of like a perestroika kind of thing that was happening in Russia. They kind of had to create this market economy. And, and now they're, you know, a big American trading partner. I mean, that's the irony, right? That the U.S. in a sense has kind of won the Vietnam War in the 21st century. If you look at Vietnam today, you, you know that better than me. Um, but, but Ho's uh, uh, legacy is also important, I think, not just for uh, the Vietnamese, but for all of us. For, for everybody who wants to kind of make the world a better place and you know lefties always get attacked oh you know leave america love it or leave it or you know but but i think understanding this global role is essential you, you know like i said i always say there's uh class struggle and anti-imperialism are two halves of the same walnut or two halves of the same struggle or whatever you want to say you have to have them both and and malcolm x understood that and you know obviously ho chi Minh understood that yeah absolutely what do you, what, um, you know, so what would you say, like, as we, we've, we've talked a while here. So what, what would you say as we, uh, kind of fade out, um, uh,
1: tell everybody to read Peniel Joseph? Definitely. Everyone should read autobiography of Malcolm X. About Malcolm X, yeah. Uh, Peniel Joseph, and then, you know, any number of like, uh, uh biographies on, on Ho Chi Minh, um. There's a ton of cool
2: stuff on YouTube too. Malcolm's speeches are all over. So that's really one really neat thing about like uh, more contemporary people because with Ho, I think there is a, a, on YouTube, there may be a, a video of the 1945, um, declaration, but it's in Vietnamese. So I, I wouldn't know what he's saying, but, uh, and there I'm sure there's latter stuff from the sixties with Ho, but, uh, really a fascinating guy, brilliant st- strategist. Um, understood the, the power of revolution, uh, understood the, the need for kind of solidarity. Uh, and um, you know, how the Vietnamese would, would make specific overtures and specific propaganda for black American soldiers. And they would quote Malcolm X. So like that was kind of one of their things. They would like, you know, try to kind of address American, black American soldiers in Vietnam and say, you know, it's what King said in that 1967 speech, right? Why are you fighting? In Vietnam, against us, when you know your problem is at home with with you know the people who run your country.
1: Yeah, and just and just as like a, a wrap up, you know Malcolm X was, um, I mean, he's like I think his most known saying is "by any means necessary," which I I actually think is then very much um, adopted by you know there's a new generation of black radicals, and and that's and we've and we've seen you know, you, we talk about this like sort of failure leadership of like the legitimate politicians, but like we see these grassroots leaders who I actually do feel like are living out the spirit of, of Malcolm X.
2: Um, yeah, Black, Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure yeah. we both saw last week, we were talking about the uh, this in uh, Georgia when the, uh, the uh, armed Black Panthers there marched down the street where that guy who hasn't been arrested yet lives. And then there were armed, uh, I don't know if there were Black Panthers, but there were um, African-Americans with weapons escorting a, a Black legislator to the state capitol in Michigan, which has now been shut down by because America is a banana republic. Uh, so, yes, yeah.
1: Michigan, definitely
2: Michigan is. Michigan, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, uh, and no, no, that's absolutely in the spirit of, of Malcolm X. And so, yeah, for a lot of people. Um, you know, like we talked to, uh, the, the, the people from solidarity, uh, Southern solidarity in new Orleans who are carrying on that tradition. Um, you know, I think Scott Crow would, would probably speak to that as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, outside of this mainstream, you know, the CNN and Fox news and all the crap that were kind of force fed. If you look beyond that, you see a lot of people doing really cool stuff. And that's something we've been talking about for a long time, right? The media loves the spectacle and they don't understand what's really happening. You know, Baldwin, right? Beneath the pavement, that's where the truth lies. And no one really wants to look there, right? So now we're gonna get a week of Obamagate and more crap about, you know, uh, more revelations about Trump screwing up and everything else. But there's some good shit going on. And there are people who are, you know, living in this spirit of, of Malcolm. And one last thing I wanna say is, you know, um, for several generations, the Vietnamese in the United States were vehemently, adamantly, virulently anti-communist because most of them you know were in some way connected to the southern vietnamese but you have a, a new younger generation of vietnamese and they definitely they change, right and so i know a lot of younger vietnamese students in my class i teach a whole class on vietnam and you know the, the most common name of my class is nguyen and you know when i first taught it like i would students would come up and say oh this isn't anything like what my parents told me and now i'm getting people who are starting to like want to know more about ho chi Minh and want to know more about Le Duan and want to know more about the vietnam and the Viet Cong and and really like really are embracing that heritage, and you're starting to see more, you know, certainly liberal Vietnamese, but even more militant, you know, uh, Vietnamese Americans now who uh, really, you know, kind of are trying to understand the kind of totality of their background, not just the the, the southern uh, uh, point of view that they got because of their own particular family heritage or whatever. So uh, anyway, this has been great. On um, May nineteenth, a big day. The May nineteenth. The green and red, what do we call it? The green and red May 19th Brigade? M-19, it? M-19, M-19. M-19 would
1: be like uh, one of those uh,
2: Algerian cells in the in the 60s or 70s or something. Yeah, or, or
1: Latin American or Peruvian yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Folks, you're listening to the green and red M-19 podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We've got big game going on in that these days. Um, we've got the we got the dank meme game going on. on
2: the yeah. Oh, let me let red. me cut in once too also um, check out the Facebook page because Scott and I have been doing pretty much every day now. Right. Uh, uh, kind of a this day in radical history kind of thing. We, we have to give it a formal name. Yep. But um, we each day we've been putting something up. It's kind of a this day in history thing, but it's not the kind of stuff you're going to get on a this day in history page. Right. Yeah. And we've had some really great stuff. Uh, Scott wrote about them. Um, uh, Jewish resistance against the Nazis in World War II. I wrote a piece about a little thing about um. It was actually German resistance. They
1: weren't even German, doing yeah it. yeah. I'm
2: sorry. Uh, I wrote a thing about the Pullman strike. Uh, Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman. Um, Nakba. So so check that out too. Uh, we you know we may not be, be doing it every day, but we'll have them up there pretty frequently, and you know share everything and, and tell everybody else to listen to the podcast. And you know we're we're closing in on a million listeners right now. I think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And and folks, you know, if we, we do this out of the uh, out of our volunteer time and out of the kindness of our donor's heart. And so if you want to become a donor at green and red podcast and help us make better episodes and help promote it far and wide, you can uh, go to patreon.com backslash green and red podcast and become a patron. Or you can go to greenredpodcast.org, and we have a donate link there, which is going to be up momentarily. It's going to be up very soon. And so just really encourage everyone to support us. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate everyone who's been kind of plugging and listening. And, you know, happy birthday to Ho and Malcolm, and we'll talk to y'all later.